Welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. I'm Harlan Kromholtz, and today we'll be talking about the role that patients play in medical research. I'm thrilled to introduce Bray Patrick Lake, who's given so much to the patient and research communities. Let me tell you a bit about Bray. After working in Hollywood, law enforcement, and homelessness outreach, Bray became involved in healthcare due to her own heart condition, patent for Amental Valley, when a hole in the heart doesn't close before childbirth. In 2008, Bray enrolled in an industry study that provided her with an implantable heart device. That study was ended early, which Bray only found out about from a Google News alert. None of the study participants had been notified. Since then, Bray founded the Peyton Foramen O'Valley Foundation, served as a patient representative to the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network, PCORnet, directed stakeholder engagement at Duke's Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, CTTI, and advised on NIH's Precision Medicine Initiative, and she currently serves as Director of Strategic Partnerships at Evidation Health. Welcome, Bray, and thank you for joining us on Never Delegate Understanding. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, this is really a special privilege for me. I wonder if you could give our listeners just a little bit of a perspective on on how you came to be a, a patient advocate, how it became a career for you. Yeah, I think I'm similar to a number of people who are involved in patient advocacy where it was very accidental and probably none of us ever intended to be having the journey that we're having. Um, I was a normal person. I was um, a young mom and I had two small kids and um, I had a a health event actually that occurred during my pregnancy where I became um, paralyzed on one side of my body and unable to speak for about 10 minutes. And then I was told that I had anxiety as a pregnant person and not to worry about it when in fact, a few days later, um, my OBGYN realized that I'd had a neuro event, and that set off all kinds of investigations and screening. And then, unfortunately, at the time, I was pregnant, and they couldn't really do anything about it. But um, over time, I started having severe migraines that were um, causing me to lose my speech and become paralyzed. And it just, my life went upside down, out of control, and my quality of life was extremely poor. And so I started searching for other options. Um, And I had been diagnosed with this heart condition, but at the time uh, they didn't know, you know, they suspected that it was related to these complex migraines and strokes, but they weren't certain. And so I started doing research on clinical trials and um, actually self-referred to a clinical trial through clinicaltrials.gov, which I think is unusual in itself. And then I actually really had to advocate for myself to even be screened. Like it was, the burden was on me to try to get in. And then even when I talked to my medical provider to say, I'm interested in this clinical trial because I'm out of options and my life is really, um, you know, the quality of it is so poor that on some days it doesn't even seem like it's worth living. Uh, Even then, my provider wasn't very supportive. And so I really um, had to take all the steps myself to get activated in research. And then I was in the trial, which I think was very poorly designed and clearly only the patients that were like the most desperate um, were, you know, were driven to participate because any reasonable person never would have participated in a trial. How, what was that study? How did it work? This had a, a sham procedure. So it was a double-blinded randomized trial where patients got a heart cath and then they didn't know whether they'd received a device for um, a year or more while they followed us. And then the trial was um, 
aborted for low and slow enrollment. And I was connected online with some other patients who were having problems. I was probably, you know, the super responder. I had the best result where uh, the device was implanted. It ended my migraines. But um, unfortunately, like the trial participants in this case, while I was treated very well by my local site investigators, we were treated very poorly, I think, by the sponsor. And some patients had serious adverse events. And that caused me to basically, um, you know, reread all of my consent forms and try to figure out how the system works. And so, I, you know, I come from a, a very diverse background and I, I do have a master's in forensic science, but I am not, at the time, I wasn't an active, you know, practicing scientist. And I think I just had kind of general lay knowledge and I couldn't make heads or tails of, you know, the consent form. And I started calling all the numbers and Every time I talked to a person, they all kind of pointed fingers and nobody took responsibility for the actual participant. And that just seemed really wrong. Like there really wasn't a safety net for them. And so I, then I thought this was an FDA issue because I didn't understand, um, you know, the regulations are very complex around um, MADUFA, the legislation that, that governs, you know, what information um, could actually be shared back with participants. In this case, the industry sponsor withdrew the marketing application, which meant FDA didn't have any legs um, to actually give us the data back, even though we wanted it. But none of that was apparent, you know, to how this worked. And in fact, the sponsor, I seriously thought was um, a group that did these great you know, commercials on TV. I didn't even understand who the sponsor was or that industry companies could actually do clinical trials. I just always assumed it was like the NIH and never thought more of it. Um, so that kind of, you know, being treated poorly in a trial kind of motivated me to, you know, learn more and then take action. I wrote up some comments and sent them in to USA Today, which turned out to be part of the FDA transparency hearings under the Obama administration, which I didn't realize. Um, and I got selected to speak at a town hall and literally, you know, with like peanut butter and jelly on my shirt, got on a plane, flew to DC to testify. And I thought I was just, you know, talking to somebody kind of like a city council meeting or a PTA meeting. And it turned out to be a full blown, um, like hearing with um, TV cameras and major heavyweights. And then me, the mom that just showed up from Colorado. Oh my goodness. Let, let me just, there's so much here. And um, I want to just unpack it a little bit from the beginning. Uh, because I want to talk about what your experience was first as discovering that you had this issue and how you were grappling with it. And I mean, I'm, one of the reasons, you know, you and, and people like you so inspire me is because you stand up for yourself. And within the healthcare environment, that can be very difficult. The power dynamic, the hierarchy, the expectations of patients to yield, you know, it's it's just so strong and can put people on their heels and, and make them feel really inhibited. Let's just go back to that 2008 first and just say, so you've you you're a mom. You're you've had you've got a career. You've done a lot of things. It's, these things happen to you during pregnancy, and people are telling you things that don't make sense to you, or sort of pushing back, telling you don't worry or it's nothing. And then you eventually get this really very, you know, sort of probably uh, a diagnosis that that was scary to you. I'm sure. You know how how did you experience that, and what was it that made you stand strong as opposed to just yield? You know, I think sometimes we don't have options and you're kind of forced to do things. And I, I certainly I'm motivated by um, justice. And, you know, I believe that all people are deserving of respect and are equals. And maybe that was why I didn't feel, I guess I felt more comfortable probably speaking up to my physicians, which I'm not sure they appreciate at the time. But, you know, we built we built a relationship and trust over time by listening to each other. But, you know, I was kind of outraged, like, 
I think the dishonesty and not not being able to just say there are scientific questions we haven't answered or, you know, my big question based on my personal characteristics, what can I expect my outcomes to be? We, you know, we don't know. And so just being honest that we have a lot of work to do and um, that we don't have all the answers. But I was really incensed because my migraines were literally so out of control that I couldn't be a good mom. And um, it was definitely affecting my relationship with my husband and certainly my work and the medications that they were putting me on to control my migraine were actually worse than my migraine where I was getting lost, like driving to the office, you know, driving to work someplace. I, I went regularly. Um, I could be on the phone with my mom and not know who it was. And I had an extensive notebook of, you know, just every little thing I did, I created all these coping mechanisms. And, um, there were honestly days that I felt like my family would be better off without me because my quality of life was so poor at that time. Oh and then anybody who's had migraine, it's, it's crazy pain. I mean, it's just off the charts, debilitating, um, will take you all the way to the bottom where sometimes it's all you can do to live to the next second. And, um, I feel like I'm a pretty strong person and, and it broke me and I just, I couldn't go on like that. So I, I had to find something else and I just, I wish that it weren't so hard. And so I think I'm a systems thinker where first I started, you know, connecting with other patients on the internet, which can be, you know, some of the most powerful and truthful sources of information um, all of that needs to be validated in trials, what we you know see online, but there's some great information sharing and, and resources, and that's where I learned of clinical trials, not from my provider, even though when I brought it up, my provider knew that these trials were going on, and she just chose not to tell me about them, even when I was saying, I can't live like this. And what was, so, the, what, was the, think, what was the reason that you were given for why she didn't want to either enroll you or even tell you about them? She said she didn't know how the trials would come out, and she also didn't have trust that industry would treat us well, which now I understand. And I, you know, I think I'm working hard along with others to change that. But um, and things have changed, I think, with this kind of move towards being more patient-centered in approaches. But back then, it was very transactional. At taking, you know, people were subjects. We were just using them to get, you know, whatever we needed and move on. And so I can understand. But it's still a matter of sort of making the decision for you. It's protecting, right. protecting exactly. you from the choice. It's paternalistic. Yeah, which I think yeah. is like something that <laughs> that needs to be surfaced, right? I mean, this is doctors we're almost – and just to be fair to her, I mean, we're trained that way. We're, we're almost trained to teach te – to treat our patients as children in a way. I mean, to – to protect them from information, to, to, to yeah. I, I've heard some doctors say, you know, don't go online. You know, you, you'll just get confused as if people are unable for themselves to be able to, to make choices or, or ask questions. And also that they're not going to immediately just embrace everything they read, that it's just going to be information. They have to look at the source. They have to figure out whether it's valid and so forth. I don't know what you think about that, but it just seems it, it, it's, I do. And I think it goes on. I mean, I still see it today. And I have, you know, my hair bristles often when I go into an office and I, I walk in and usually like I've literally seen a sign like you walk in and it says, you know, don't confuse Google with my medical degree. You'll see something arrogant, <laughs> you know, kind of oh right gosh. when you walk in, which is funny, except for it's off putting. Yeah. And I have every right to print up studies I find on the Internet and bring them in, you know, for discussion. Right. And um and I think the patient's lived experience, like that's the one thing, like we are all experts in our own disease. And even when you have, you know, the same disease as other patients, our individual experiences are unique and we need to have, you know, confidence that we can stand, you know, in our own two feet and say, this is what I need. And these are my questions and this is my experience and, and not shy away from that. God, I love that. I, 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 and it's such deep wisdom. It, one of the things, just to get back to where you were, I mean, there's something about you 
the person that led you to this, but a lot of people listening might be wondering, like, how do you make that leap? A lot of people I've heard reflect that that they're afraid their doctors won't take that well, that, that in fact they will in some ways be penalized by, the, by challenging authority. And, and I, don't, I think most doctors, I would like to think most doctors aren't like that, but, but I do understand that power dynamic. How did you manage that? Well, in, in this trial in, in particular, we had a, a specific event where one of the patients in my Facebook group was basically, she got randomized, got, had the procedure, and unfortunately her device failed. And there is some question still to this day where the, um, the person who implanted it said the device didn't lock properly. And then the sponsor said he didn't use the device properly. And again, all finger pointing, but at the middle of this, there's a person who went from having 11 migraines a month to having it be uh, chronic, uh, you know, daily where she could get no relief. She lost her job. She lost her health insurance. Her home went into foreclosure. And then she was in Facebook basically saying she went from kind of suicidal ideation to a day that she posted a plan. And at that point, I called my investigator, who happens to be John Carroll at the University of Colorado um, Hospital, and he's amazing. And I put him in a very bad spot. I mean, you know, I basically was like, hi, you know, I'm a person in a trial. I should just be a subject number. But, you know, obviously you're uh, providing me care at this point and follow up after the procedure. I need you to get in touch with the sponsor. And so he got involved. Um, But I know it was very, you know, hard for him. And then we had to get this other investigator in a different state to take some action. And then ultimately we had to get this patient outside the trial, which meant getting her trial records, getting independent review, sending her to a different provider outside the trial who got her back into the cath lab and was able to do a heart cath and see, in fact, that the device, you know, had had an issue and was actually making her defect worse when she'd been told, you know, too bad, so sad, it's not, it's nothing. Um, they also, because this person um, suffered depression, they basically just wrote her off and said, you know, she didn't have anything um, rational, you know, to say, and that it was just because she was depressed. And so, that really incensed me. Um, and that was, you know, and then fighting for the records and not being able to get the results and to see on the internet, just in Facebook, the different results of the patients, because we were all sharing, you know, and kind of in real time about our experience. And again, I happen to do really well and I'm grateful this, you know, device has changed my life, but for others, they, they didn't do so well. And we have every right to see that data and to know what happened. Then we started getting other patients internationally where the device was available. Um, in, in the U.S., it was just investigational and will never come to market here, but we could see patients around the world and they were talking about their experiences. And so I knew that there were some adverse events that I really, you know, we deserve to know more about. Um, and then particularly managing, like we live with these for the rest of our life unless we've opened heart surgery, you know, and so I think it's really um, appalling that we never got to see any evidence and that nothing ever got published because, you know, I would hate to see somebody else do a study you know, with a similar design or create a device that has a similar, you know, adverse event profile, like we could share this information and just, you know, go forward that much faster. So I think I'm very, you know, motivated to take things like that on. Nothing was ever published from the study? Nope. Wow. So that's an amazing journey you had with that study and and not entirely positive. I mean, the positive parts were when you connected with others and found this font of wisdom about your condition and, and were able to give social support and receive social support from a wide range of people that were facing similar health challenges. But, but a lot of the experience you had wasn't, wasn't what we in the research community would have liked for you to, to have. And a lot of us in the research community were never trained to think about, which was, what's the experience for the participant? And, and how can this be uh, more of a partnership? And how can we learn from 
those who are participating in our studies and share information back with them and, and really treat them with honor and respect, the honor and respect they deserve. But, but you didn't stop there. You didn't you know, just say, well, I'm done with studies or this isn't working. You, you tacked it in a different direction. You said, I'm going to get even more involved. How, how did that work? So I think um, Rob Califf, who's one of my mentors um, at the time at Duke and then, you know, former FDA commissioner, uh, he's called me a constructive critic where, you know, I was undeniably angry, um, but I wanted change. And really the only way to change is to listen to all the other parties involved and really be honest about what are the issues and then how do we address them. And so I founded the um, the PFO Research Foundation, and then we had an all-volunteer patient board, but we had a medical advisory, which Dr. John Carroll, you know, was the lead of, and we certainly had neurologists and cardiologists from around the country um, that put in a lot of time and effort, but we had a scientific summit where we really just totally bootstrapped it, um, you know, raised some well, cash. Just, wait a minute, when you say we had, so the patient's so yeah. we're going to form a we're going to form a meeting and we're going to invite the researchers to the meeting. Yes. Wow. They helped, you know, shape the scientific agenda the medical advisory did. Um and also helped make context. So like once once we had built trust and that being, you know, the patient board with the medical advisors and they knew that we were um I think while upset we were reasonable and we were seeking solutions um and that we did have good things to say even if they weren't in the most articulate, you know, scientific language, we all kind of had, you know, common interests, which was doing good things for patients. And then that kind of, you know, we built enough trust that they were willing to reach out to their contacts and say, hey, there's going to be the scientific summit, we would like you to come. So we couldn't have done that without the investigators um, and the medical advisors who helped us. But we had to kind of prove ourselves that we were, you know, we were real, that we were getting organized, and that we were also willing to listen um, to them and to, you know, to do things in a way that I guess is um, credible and also respectful because you can go on the internet and make a heck of a lot of noise. You can be angry all you want, but that doesn't change anything. And so we really needed to get all the stakeholders in the room to say, here's where we are with the science. Here's where we are with trials. You know, what does the future look out, look like? And then, you know, develop a roadmap. And we developed, um, you know, a guide for patients with PFO and kind of started from there. How many patients did you have in the organization? The board was small. There was like four of us, you know, in executive leadership. And then we were primarily an online group, which even to this day, uh, a couple of years ago, we dissolved the brick and mortar piece of the foundation and we're just an online group now. So we, you know, came to create um, this information and resource for patients and we did that. And now we're still providing support online, but the science is kind of off and running. So we've, you know, we've kind of backed up and, you know, I think it was also the right place in the right time where it took, you know, individuals and the field was really in a crisis. There were multiple failed clinical trials. There was a lot of bad press. I had venture capitalists actually calling me and saying, should we invest in this space? And it was just crazy. Like, why would you call a patient who has no approved therapies and ask them, should we be investing in your trials? You know, like, what do you think about that? It was just, it was mind blowing. Um, how insensitive and unaware, you know, people could be about what it's like to live with, uh, you know, a health condition with no approved therapies. So this is interesting to me because when I was on the board of the Patient Area Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, you know, I was pushing this idea of patient-powered research networks. And actually what you did was what was 
being envisioned at that time. It, it, it wasn't, in practice, it didn't roll out quite this way, but it was the idea that motivated patients supported with funds and expertise around from the medical field could really drive forward the need for research and help direct the questions and be part of the design of the studies, bringing forth the wisdom that they had about their experience. But in a, in a way, hiring the, the researchers, I mean, instead of the other way around, I mean, trying to find people who were um, truly committed to trying to drive forth progress and to address the problems that they found most pressing. And it, that's really what you did. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. And to be clear, we did that with no budget. I mean, to this date, I think our foundations never raised more than $80,000, like total over uh, years. And so we really relied on um, the medical advisory to donate their time. We have paid for a few plane tickets to get people, you know, to places, but that's been about it. So we didn't, you know, we didn't want to spend time on infrastructure and, you know, waste money in that way. It would be great if there was funding, but honestly, there wasn't. And so we had to just kind of find a way around. And, and do you think more studies have been done as a re because you guys were involved? Oh, gosh. You know, I saw a protocol recently for it, it's so similar to the one that failed that it's just kind of shocking that a sponsor, you know, it's 10 years later and they're still doing what I would call the same crappy protocol that I know is going to fail up front. Um, and guess what they're focusing on recruitment? Like they're putting all their eggs, instead of making a high quality protocol with patient input, they are very focused on get people in, you know, spend money on recruitment. And um, yeah. it's, it, you know, it's troubling, but I can't. You mean as opposed to engagement? It's exactly. And so it's quality by design. Right. So all stakeholders should have input into the protocol to make it the ideal yep. trial. And that that's still not happening. But I think you just you know, they're going to fail and it's sad and we're going to have to just keep moving forward in other areas. And so the research for PFO and stroke um, did successfully move forward, but PFO and migraine is still paddling around and until they change, you know, the trials and I think listen to patients, they're not going to make progress. And it's sad because unmet need. And so are you seeing progress in, overall in the way trials are? I mean, you worked for the clinical trials transformation effort. Yeah. And, you know, what, what have you seen? So what really quickly happened is that I realized it was a systems issue. And so the things that my group was dealing with and the things that our medical advisors were dealing with were part of the system that can't be solved by one stakeholder or in one trial. Like it shouldn't be solved in a one-off fashion. We really needed to create different frameworks for bringing patient voice into research. And so at Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, we um, basically, you know, did a full-on mixed methods project where we started with lit review and we did a survey, we did qualitative, qualitative interviews, and then we also, um, you know, did an expert meeting and developed best practices for working with patients around clinical trials. And that's an FDA public-private partnership. And so this was going on kind of when um, patient-focused drug development came up and then 21st century cures. And so there were a lot of efforts and certainly um, PCORI, you know, um, had a had a big hand in that. And I was um, at the original meeting for patients with PCORI years ago, and then uh, the PCORNet um, Patient Centered Outcomes Research Network with a patient-powered research networks where we did see, you know, more of these models that had patients at the center in driving research. And I don't think I would ever call like our medical advisors and research partners consultants, but it was certainly you know, multi-stakeholder effort. And that's what it, what it takes to make, you know, true durable change. So should patients, should people who are considering being part of research, I mean, we have lots of 
choke points. I mean, one choke point is people even hearing about studies and knowing that they're eligible. But, but when someone's evaluating whether to become involved, should they be asking the question, to what extent were people like me involved in, in, in the design? And I mean, how can, how can someone who's considering a study take this into account? And on one hand, we're trying to get more people into studies. On the other hand, we're trying to get more people into the right kind of studies, the studies that are truly patient-centered, that, you know, are treating people as partners. And, and to me, it's, you know, it's hard to tell people how to, how to differentiate, how to make the distinction. I think it's really tricky. And I think eventually, you know, we want to make the system good enough that it works for all comers and anybody, you know, should be offered the opportunity to participate. But it can't, you know, patients are so caught up in what I call the tyranny, you know, of, of the day where you're just trying to get through the day and your illness is out of control. And at that point, you know, you're consented for research. And a lot of times it's like, did the person who consent me seem like a nice person? Are they reasonable? You know, did I learn about benefits and risks and have my questions answered? I, I don't think a lot of us at that moment in, in life are in a position, you know, to be like, hey, excuse me, did you engage patients in designing this protocol? And this is where the role of patient groups comes in. So if you're, you know, it depends on how you entered the clinical trial system. So if you came from a patient group that aggregated patients that actively, um, you know, is able to pull patient voice through to, to design protocols and to kind of put a, a good housekeeping seal of approval on trials and say, this was well done, I think that's one thing. But for the average patient, you know, just in a community setting, I, I didn't have that luxury. Yeah, it seems like, um, I mean, it gets also to this issue of the informed consent. I mean, probably there's something in looking at whether or not you can even understand the informed consent that tells you whether patients involved. One of the things that you and I had been involved in and uh, have discussed is the idea that PCORI, one of the great things it did was this sort of a lay summary so that if people can't parse the information, at least in a dense informed consent, much of that information is being mandated by Institutional Review Board, which ironically is trying to do that to better serve the participants, but sometimes overreaches so that it becomes too dense to understand. But but at least if there's a lay summary, people have access to saying, well, in essence, what's in this consent? Uh, that's a good idea. But but so few studies have that. Right. And I, I do think that should be the norm. So I think, um, you know, lay summary requirements about, you know, what the trial is about written um, at no higher than eighth grade level, which takes a lot of doing because we have a lot of big words in science. And so there's actually, you know, quite a bit of work that goes into creating a lay summary, but we should communicate, you know, what, what's the research about? Um, and then, you know, the regulations make all this legalese. That's really what I call more institutional protections. And we've had very little success in, I think, changing that over the years. And it takes, you know, it's a heavy lift, it's slow, it takes forever. And then it's been very incremental changes, but you can work around that by creating complementary materials based on patient input. And so it's as simple as it sounds as actually having uh, some patients who are reflective of the trial population read the consent and, you know, circle big words that they don't understand or what, you know, what questions do they have that are still outstanding? What do they want to know more about? And then you can create a patient-friendly material uh, to complement that or a video asset or, you know, a recording, something that speaks to the patient and how they learn and how they process information versus, you know, here's 40 pages of institutional legalese that basically 
everything ends in death. If you read it, you know, you're, you're going to die. That could be an outcome. Um, you're going to bleed, you're going to whatever. And it all sounds really scary. Right. Um, but giving patients some, you know, some, some way of answering that question, then I even think helping them, you know, the, through the decision-making process. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, one of the themes that's coming through is really the need for patient groups that are, that are not beholden to anyone, but the patients. And they're trying to help provide them uh, support and strength and connections and and help work their way through these things. Let, let me ask you, uh, as we get sort of toward the end, so you, you've you made a, a jump. You're at, at a new place. You're at Evidation Health as Director of Strategic Partnerships. C- can you just, what was your thinking here? Because I know you're continuing your quest to make the world better and to, and to get patients in a stronger position. Uh, what was this about? Why'd you do it? And, and what are you doing actually these days? So Evidation Health, um, you know, we seek new ways to um, measure health in everyday life. So it's not making patients necessarily come into clinic, which there might be elements in a particular trial about that, but we complement it with, you know, day-to-day living data, essentially. And so um, the thing that I really loved, Evidation started with value. And so we've got three and a half million patients. Uh, Actually, they're people. They're not patients. They're um, people. And some of them I would call patients in the wild who happen to be people living with a health condition, but they started by creating value. And so people, you know, joined this um, app called uh, Achievement and they're sharing um, health data. They're getting, um, uh, you know, rewards and value out of doing that. And then they're being asked if they want to participate in research. And then they're also being individually permissioned. So we would never just, you know, take data from them. And so I feel like starting with the people and creating value, whereas we've been trying to drive people you know, to other places for, you know, the purposes of investigators or for the purposes, you know, of research that wasn't necessarily in, you know, in a person's daily path. And so I believe if you start from the person and the value, and then um, through technology, we've been able to kind of activate um, the ability to bring in those perspectives and have bi-directional conversations and, you know, be able to talk, actually talk to patients, which in academia, I was having to contract somebody to go find people to then you know, try to get somebody to be in a focus group or an advisory board. And, you know, there's so many other patients out there that we should be talking to, and it should just be seamless. And so that's really what made me switch. Plus, I wanted to work with people who wake up in the morning, and it's always about the people in the study first. Yeah, I love the the fact that there's really the emphasis on on permission. And, and uh, you know, I got to hear one of the co-founders last week, and I like that really the push was around even dynamic consent. That is not just a singular consent, but but if we have additional uses of your data, if we have additional things that, that you potentially could participate in, you know, asking you again and saying, you know, we, we've got the means to do that. I, I think that we too often in research have been inflexible or or just too simplistic around what people's preferences might be. And, and just, hey, we're just trying to get your data as opposed to, hey, how can we work together to make progress? And let us respect you by asking you again if, if there's a new use of your data. And then showing, you know, I mean, I think we try to share lay summaries back and telling people how we're using their data, when we're using it, who's using it. It builds trust and over time. And we find that they, you know, they say yes. <laughs> um, whereas I think there's a big fear that if we actually, you know, I, I don't know, or people would just say no. And so then we try to create all these workarounds. Is it public health? Is it, you know, quality improvement research? Is there a way that we can just take this data? And I think Sharon Terry from Genetic Alliance really said it best of, you know, if you ask me to ride my bike, I'm going to say yes. And if you take it, I'm going to be mad as hell. And so just, 
the more we ask, you know, and the more we share about what we're doing with this data and how we're using it to improve health outcomes or, or population health, I mean, of course, more people are going to participate, but we just, we don't bother. A lot of times we take data, we leave, and you never hear from, you know, the researcher again. Right. I mean, it's up to us to be worthy and, and to show that participation matters and that there, people get something back from it. And and if not for them, for society and, and in ways that, that they can feel good about. But I, I absolutely agree. It's it's something that uh, it's up to us, not just to fear that people won't participate, but to make it so it's inviting and, and positive experience for people to do so. And easy, frictionless. Easy, frictionless. Absolutely. That's where technology comes in. So, you know, apps, wearables, sensors, like passive, you know, make it frictionless where we're passively with your permission collecting data and then bringing it you know to research rather than trying to drive people over to research which i think has been very difficult and telling them what we've learned that let me get back to one thing here at the end which i just want to hit on which is you know a lot of people listening to you are going to be inspired they're going to see you appropriately as courageous and groundbreaking you're pioneering you're you know you're such a force of nature. You're, you know, you're dedicated to really making things better. But, but for a lot of people, they may think that's great for her, but I couldn't possibly do this. Or I, I don't see how I cross the bridge from where I am, mm-hmm. scared, worried, tired, to where I can actually assert myself. And that's where this never delegate understanding, where I don't have to yield, but I can actually say I need to understand my condition, my options, what's in front of me. What's your advice to people listening about what the possibilities are and and what they can do? I think do what you can when you can. Because again, if people are upside down, you know, just trying to get through the day with their own health or their child's health, that's maybe not the best time, you know, to try to get involved more deeply. But it can be a simple conversation in a peer online group. Um, I mean, it, it could be if you happen to be connected, you know, with a researcher or a patient group, you know, asking them about opportunities um, to help with research. It, it can be as simple as participating in research, but even just sharing your data, you know, has value. But I, I don't think there's a formula. I think for me, helping people when I was at my worst took the attention off my own pain. And so that's kind of what, you know, what I was doing. So while it wasn't intentionally self-serving, I think it benefited me to help other people. And, you know, there's a value if you're online and you happen to say, this was my experience, or I had, you know, this adverse event, or, you know, when I used this medication, it helped my stomach to take milk, all of that is a value. And so, you know, there are many ways to get involved. And when the time is right, if you, you know, find yourself having an interest in research and you're reading and you want to learn more, there will be, you know, folks out there that can help you learn more. And I think I'm kind of you know, was kind of self-taught. There was no curriculum. And I, and I don't honestly don't think there necessarily should be. I don't think there's like a, you know, a patient advocacy, you read all this and check these boxes and now you're an expert. Like we're all experts and we just have to find, you know, what's right in our lives um, to apply, you know, and bring those skills, which could be peer support or helping design a research study. Well, Bray, thank you so much. I don't know. There's so much wisdom in, in everything you've said, and I hope that others find it as inspiring as I do. And I want to thank you deeply both for your time on this podcast, but also for all the great work you're doing trying to make things better. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Carballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast. 
or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks.